Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Benedivo. Today, I had the distinct pleasure of sitting down with Sanket Bathak, founder and CEO of Synapse. Synapse was one of the very first embedded finance players and one of the very first people to offer banking as a service. Today, Sanket and I spoke about what it was like building out all this infrastructure from scratch, whether it was KYC or building on legacy banking systems. We also spoke about how Sanket is this product-obsessed CEO, and it was fascinating to hear from him about how he thinks about his product roadmap and how he thinks about being a technical CEO and taking on a variety of different responsibilities. Today's episode was super interesting, and I hope you all enjoy it. With that, a warm welcome to Sanket Patek from Synapse. Welcome to the More Infant Tech Podcast. Where are you calling in from today? Um, thanks for having me, Josh. I am calling from our office in San Francisco. What about you? I'm calling in from Philadelphia. Just left campus not too long ago. Um, so I guess we could get started. Just love to hear about your background. You were actually just telling me before we started recording that you're you're from India, but uh, would love to hear about your background and how you got into fintech. Yeah, uh, born and raised in India. About 16 or 17 years old, I believe, is when I moved to the U.S. I moved here um, to do my undergrad in uh, computer engineering and then uh, tacked on uh, math as well. Um, I was going to finish physics, but then I wanted to. I was too eager to graduate, so then I just graduated with uh, computer engineering and uh, math as my majors and almost completed physics. I, I, think, I think I had two courses left. Um, then I did my master's in computer engineering um, at, at, at the University of Memphis, uh, well, technically electrical engineering. Um, and around that time, I got interested in um, building things, building technology. And uh, I, was, I, was, uh, I was at a hackathon and um, I had had a poor experience with banking historically because when I came to America, I couldn't open up a bank account and I, ha- I had to have my university help me with opening a bank account and then also go to a bank branch to open one. And then I was sitting in this hackathon, um, I believe either I had graduated undergrad or I was about to graduate undergrad and go to master's. And I was trying to get ideas for this hackathon and I downloaded this app called Simple, uh, which um, was like a neobank in the day. and one of my friends, Thomas, did the same thing. So both of us downloaded Simple. Uh, he could open up a bank account in, I believe, like probably 60 seconds or less. Uh, and they denied me a bank account. Uh, and that time I got really obsessed. I didn't, I didn't realize, uh, I, I didn't understand why they denied me a bank account. Um, and coming out of that hackathon, um, I decided that I wanted to try to build a, a competitor to Simple. Uh, but it just needed to work for everybody. It didn't matter if you were kind of like rich or poor. It didn't matter if you were an immigrant. It should just work. Um, as I went down that path, uh, naively, I quickly realized that simple was not the problem. It's more so the infrastructure for uh, proper KYC for folks that didn't have um, a social security with credit history um, was very poor. So initially, I decided that I wanted to build the KYC infrastructure um, and build online banking. So still do simple, but also build the KYC infrastructure. And uh, soon I realized that uh, most of the other technology didn't exist as well. There were no APIs to issue cards, open up accounts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, found spending most of my time writing code for the backend, KYC, AML, uh, payment processing, um, while also trying to do the front end. Uh, 
and somewhere in between there uh, decided to pivot and essentially just build the infrastructure and give it its full attention versus building the infrastructure and the customer product. Um, and back then, I didn't think that uh, there would be a lot of demand for it. I thought maybe like five, ten companies will use it, but I think it'd be fine. It'll be great. Um, and I just got lucky, and there there ended up being a lot more people that wanted to use the product than I thought. And uh, uh, we became kind of like the first embedded finance banking as a service provider before those words or titles existed, um, and have been scaling it since then and adding products since then. That's awesome. It really is a story of like first mover in such a hot industry now. Um, really cool story. Out of curiosity, how do you actually build a KYC infrastructure from scratch? Like I imagine there was there was no on Fido, I assume back in the day, right? Like you're not and 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 yeah, I guess like how did how did you build that out? Well, first you have to be stupid to be like you can you can build it out. So I think it always starts with naivety and stupidity. Um, so, um, I, I joke sometimes like the famous last words are, uh, how, how, how hard could this really be? And then it turns out it's usually hard. Um, but the problem I was wanting to solve in the KYC space was, um, fairly restricted. Um, I was trying to reverse engineer what I had to go through going to a bank branch, but do it digitally right so uh the problem statement i started out with okay if my if my social security number doesn't have a credit history so uh ideology and lexus nexus cannot really verify me then uh, uh and i didn't know those vendors existed back then i just knew that somebody was verifying social security and they weren't really verifying social security with the irs they were verifying social security with credit header data that's all i knew uh, so i was like okay well when I went to the bank branch, they took my social security, they took my social security card, and they also collected my driver's license. Um, so what if all I did was automate the driver's license verification process, uh, because then I should have everything I need to be able to underwrite somebody and open up an account for them. Um, so we spent a lot, of, a lot of our time building out the computer vision infrastructure um, that did object detection, object recognition, OCR, Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And then o- o- over time, it became a little bit more complex. Behind the scenes, we also started doing IP, email, uh, phone number verification. Then we connected to the IRS and started doing uh, social security verification. Uh, uh, the benefit of doing social security verification directly with the IRS is that you don't run into any synthetic identity issues because uh, synthetic identities get introduced at at the point of a lender, which is when the credit uh, um, is being. Uh, broadcasted and reported to the bureaus, not when the IRS uh, um, issues and has your social security number. Uh, so we started doing all of our SSN verifications there, built out our computer vision infrastructure, and then uh, plugged into various data enrichment tools behind the scenes um, to do email, phone number, address, IP verification. And since then, now we've combined all of these signals into doing something called ID score that that helps us predict the likelihood of identity theft. So now there's a probabilistic expression of everything. But when we started, it was like relatively incremental. So Yeah, that's crazy. I think I think it comes from that naivete where you're just coming in from the side. You're like, well, it doesn't exist. Let's build it, right? That's, that's what yeah. it sounds like. Um, well, and- that plus, I think like there is this, um, sometimes you don't know how you'll get to the end solution. So you just have to like do the small things. So just like incrementally improve. 
And you, and you mentioned you mentioned you started with a problem statement. Was that was that kind of the framework you had? You had these problem statements that you would just iterate over and 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 refine over time. I think if you really want to learn, if you re, if you really want to learn a lot about yourself, you should start a company because um, like you you kind of learn a whole lot because uh, all of your successes and mistakes are kind of like codified somewhere, right? Like so, your performance is pretty much out there. Um, so yeah, I've learned a lot of stuff about myself. One of those things is that like for me to be able to really get obsessed about something, I have to inherently be obsessed with the problem statement. So it always starts with the problem statement. It's like, what is the problem that I'm trying to solve and why? Um, and then uh, I, I'm i an engineer, so I love getting into the how uh, almost all the time. So then it's like, okay, well, how do you do it? And then my brain just starts working from there. But yeah, that's I, awesome. But I've only, but I've only learned about I've only learned that about me in hindsight, which is like doing this for like seven, eight years. Now I know that that's how I work. What's it's a little sidetrack, but what's your problem statement now? Or is it the same one? It's kind of the same one, except maybe a little bit more ambitious than it was when I started. When I started, my problem statement was, how do I open up a bank account for somebody who doesn't have like credit history? Uh, and I think now my problem statement is, um, um, how do I give anyone and everyone who's interested in getting access to safe and equitable financial services across the planet access to those? And when I ask that question, the answer I arrive at are like two things. Number one, I'm not convinced that people care about currencies as much as everybody claims they do. I think people just want to hold the safest currency on the planet. And then they won't act as an ubiquity, which is, can I get, can I open up an account in that currency? And then um, ubiquity, it needs to work almost everywhere. Uh, so our solution to global is a little different, which is, uh, we believe USD is right now the most stable currency, um, unless you really want to uh, go to China and Russia. But uh, USD is the most stable currency on the planet. And then how can we give everyone access to USD that, and those people necessarily don't always live in the U.S., um, which behind the scenes, most of the economy already runs on dollar with dollar reserves and petrodollar. So it's more so how do you put that in the hands of the consumers? But we arrived at that solution because our problem statement was not uh, banking as a service is just killing it for us in the U.S. And how do we make banking as a service kill it for us mm -hmm. across the planet? Our problem statement is... How do we give people access to the safest currency in the most easiest way and make it ubiquitous? And that's the problem we're solving. That's awesome. That's awesome. Hey, I hear that. My my family's from Argentina, and you know, I'm sure I'm sure you know that oh, yeah. their addiction to dollars is very serious. I mean, real estate transactions are done in dollars. Anyway, so you so you're take me through the mindset because it's unique. You're you're a master's student at University of Memphis, right? And you're maybe have job offers, you know, whatever, you have to pay your tuition and everything. Where did you get the guts to go out and say, hey, I'm going to start this totally new thing that doesn't exist, embedded finance, banking as a service. I'm going to start a company that does that. Well, I had scholarships. I didn't have any debt, so that oh. really helped. <laughs> um, so I think I started there. And um, I, I honestly didn't think it was that risky. I thought... Um, uh, I had a problem statement and I was obsessed with uh, finding a solution. And uh, my brain didn't work as much as, hey, how much, like, 
I need to be wealthy by the time I am X age. My brain worked at, okay, I, I'm obsessed with this problem. Uh, how do I, how do I make sure that I don't, I don't end up on the streets and uh, still work on it? Um, so that, that really contextualized the risk quite differently for me, which in that case pretty much meant that I like went to graduate school when I started Synapse and um, uh, made like, uh, like a graduate assistant salary, which was, um, I believe, $1,000 a month. Um, and uh, I just lived off that. And I was like, this is great. I, 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 I teach people, which I love doing anyways. Uh, so I loved my graduate assistant job. Um, and then um, I, on the side, just build stuff and it's fun. So like I just I just did that. I didn't think that was as much like as risky. Um, I'm sure as you get older and you have family obligations, it becomes more riskier than that. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then also, so you have such a you sound like a very talented engineer. You know, I've never seen your you code before, but you sound very talented. How did you ever think about? Hey, well, I'm sure when you were first starting, you weren't thinking I'm gonna run. A, thousand or 500 whatever person company but as you start to think about especially for you know the mbas out there spend two years studying how you're gonna run a company how did you think about it how did you tackle thinking about the softer skills that you need on the job whether it's managerial whether it's sales pr you know um how did you think about that um i've been told sales comes naturally to me because i usually understand how the product works so i'm able to explain that plainly uh, so having product market fit really helped because selling is not exceptionally hard, especially at the early days, if your product resonates with the market. So it's a lot about just like telling people how things work than trying to sell them something. Uh, so I intuitively was good at sales. Um, uh, I was not good at building companies. I was not good at managing people. I was not good at delegating. I was not good at a bunch of these different things. And over the course of the last like, six, seven years, I've just like learned a lot of that uh, by trial and error. Um, over time, I I got more friends in, in the same job. So I had people that were doing my job. And in some cases, they were a few years ahead of me. And uh, they still are a few years ahead of me. Um, and that ended up being really helpful because like I can just ask them about the problems that I'm facing and uh, how could I solve them. Uh, and then... Uh, I slowly started getting better at kind of like hiring like high quality people. Um, and when you start hiring high quality people, which is like a good executive team and everything, um, then things become even easier because then uh, you can you can learn from them uh, in areas that you're not good at. Uh, and if you have the right team, they also learn from you. Um, and then it becomes a much more of an easier ride. Like uh, uh, for a while I had, I, I pretty much had a mental block around like, how to build and scale an executive team. And I think uh, um, I've spent some energy and cycles on that. Um, but slowly I started getting better at it. So a lot of this is trial and error. Sadly, there's no like school you can go to to learn this. Um, so I, you're right. I was like a half-decent engineer. Um, and uh, because I built things and I'm a product person, I could articulate and sell them. Um, uh, but everything else I had to learn. And what I've found about great CEOs, uh, which by no means I like, 
I've had to learn a lot over time, but like the really good CEOs that I see are very self-aware around what they're really good at and what they need to su- supplement themselves with. That's actually true for all great leaders, not just CEOs. So I've I've gotten much better at that. I'm I'm far more self-aware um, in what my strengths are and what kinds of people I need to hire around me. Uh, but you only learn that about yourself over time. So sadly, there's no like generic CEO school. You just have to you just have to know yourself well, and then based on that plug in the gaps and go from there. So give us some of the secrets. What have you learned about scaling an executive team, especially in embedded finance where maybe you need a certain skill set or certain people on your executive team? How how did you think about it in each stage and what would you have done differently? I mean, a lot of things I could have done differently, but they end up up being just lessons generally. Um, What I've learned now more than anything else is um, there, there are certain things only a CEO can do. And maybe let me say differently, that there are certain things only a founder can do and they need to hire people for everything but that. Um, In some cases, uh, the the only, like only some founders can fundraise. Well, first off, if you cannot fundraise, you shouldn't be the CEO, but that's a different thing, right? So, uh, but there are only like certain things that founders can do. And sometimes it varies by company, right? Like, if you want to be a founder and you want to be a CEO, then obviously you have to do the fundraise piece. You have to be able to recruit. You have to be able to kind of like represent your product really well. And then your job is to create leverage for yourself in all of the other areas so that you're not getting pulled down um, in any of those areas. Um, and the, there are certain things that in most cases only founders can do really well, which is like vision, alignment, conviction, energy, culture, right? Uh, so usually what I've learned over time is I kind of think of my role less so as a CEO, more so as a founder, which is like, okay, what are the things that absolutely only I can do, I need to do, I have to do? And then how can I hire people for everything else and hire really rock solid people for everything else? Because I am less so a CEO uh, or like anything. I'm more so like a founder who's wanting to make his company successful. So I just have to be like a very efficient capital allocator uh, who at the end of the day, does the right thing by the company and grows it um, while while also having some kind of conscience. I think that's important for me. So like kind of having some kind of a mission that I get excited about and then building an executive team that really gives me leverage. But I think the leverage piece is exceptionally important. You learn about that more and more over time. But I can tell you, at least from my experience, building a company is what I said at the beginning of this interview. It's all about, it's it's a journey to learn about yourself. And once you get really good at knowing yourself then it's about plugging the holes on all the areas that you're not good at or things that only you can do and nobody else can do thanks i know i know i'm hitting you with the hard questions i appreciate i appreciate you your answers um yeah so i guess okay now moving towards more a little bit more of that vision a little bit more of that product orientation that i'd love to pick your brain about what's your strategy going forward I guess between let's first talk about the, the the trade-off between developing new products and especially in a place like banking as a service where it's the question of building redundancies operational efficiencies you know building on your apis um how are you thinking those two things um that's actually a really good question um what's the trade-off between doing something new and really refining something that exists already it all goes down to your strategy at the end of the day, right? And I'll kind of answer it, like, not just generally, I'll answer specifically to Synapse as well. Generally, it's as simple as what gets you 
close to realizing your mission as quickly as possible and growing your revenue because it's a business, it's not a nonprofit. So like, how can you grow as quickly as possible? Uh, and what do you need to do to be able to get there? As it comes to Synapse, uh, the regulatory environment that America is in right now um, and the scrutiny around fintechs generally, when you evaluate all of that, the answer you come out with is right now, the most successful embedded finance company uh, will be one that really gets compliance right and really gets redundancy and infrastructure right uh, and doesn't just always do the new shiny thing needed all the time. So right now, a lot of the company focuses around that, which is uh, uh, redundancy, uh, around compliance, efficiency, uh, um, doing things right versus doing a lot of things. And underlying all of that is like our long-term roadmap, which is we want to make sure that we give folks around the world access to the safest currency and uh, um, a financial infrastructure. So we'll keep on building. Like today, we have global cash. It's a global product that's live. It's like a cash management account um, for folks that don't live in the U.S. They can hold USD and also in some cases spend using a card. We'll double down on that. We'll probably build like global credit. Uh, then we want to make sure to us the future isn't just fintech. The future is embedded finance, right? So like uh, for it to be Im- truly embedded finance, you have to uh, you have to really nail down intelligence. So eliminate ID, like identity verification complexities away, fraud management complexities away, credit underwriting complexities away. And then finally, also, um, if people don't want to build a UI, give them widgets that they can just put into their UI, right? Like the, the eventual goal of Synapse is it works for anybody globally and it's just drag and drop. You can just drop a module and it's done. Like a, like a white labeled um, solution. Yeah, it's just like drag and drop. Takes five minutes, you go live. So that's like the long-term vision. Currently, we're just so hunkered down on just redundancy, compliance efficiency, just making sure we're doing it right uh, from a regulatory and compliance perspective, while also slowly making progress on some of the new product initiatives as well. But that's also kind of like where the market's at and the dynamic, and you adjust. So Global Cash looks super cool. Can you talk about that? I, you know, Again, as someone who comes from a family that has a lot of yeah, people in Argentina. It sounds like a super cool product. How does it actually work? I think it kind of connects also to what we were talking about in the beginning of the episode, which is ID verification and KYC. Yeah, our goal with Global Cash is to uh, give people a a deposit instrument that just works in USD, and it doesn't matter where you live. And if it turns out USD isn't the best currency, then move to whatever the best currency is. But uh, the vision is people are, are around the world uh, need a safe currency to put their money in and an account they can access and operate. What that really translates down to from a product perspective is uh, we have a cash management account. So uh, we have a broker dealer and through that broker dealer, we have a, a, a cash management account um, uh, that we open up for folks in and it doesn't matter which country you live in, by the time we can identity verify you and onboard you, we, we will try to onboard you. And then with that, you can uh, hold USD. So you can essentially move money from Argentina and hold it into the uh, in the US, um, reduce the inflation burden and get something more stable than what you would find locally. And depending on uh, where you are and what you want to do, you might also be able to get a card issued on top of it so that you can essentially use that either by, if you're traveling into the U.S., easy, 
or after some approvals, if you even want to spend it locally. Um, and we just want to scale that. We want to scale that to as many countries as we can. Um, and to your point, there are just like three big constraints. The first one is, can we do identity verification well in that country? Uh, the second big piece is, um, um, are, we, are, are we in breach of any local laws or regs? Um, uh, and like AKA also, is that country sanctioned? How risky is it from an AML perspective? Um, so what we call an international risk assessment, doing that for the country. Um, and then the final piece is if the card needs to be used locally, like uh, uh, does the FinTech have an approval for MasterCard to be able to use it locally? If they just want to use it for travel, that's pretty easy and straightforward. And we just execute region by region um, to be able to enable that product for people. But at the core of it, the intention is you don't, like if, if, if you live in Sri Lanka, you don't have to default and your currency goes to zero when your country defaults, right? Like you can, you can, you can hedge out of it. Um, and that's what the product's really trying to, trying to help people with. That's awesome. I love that. I love that. Uh, what, what countries are you in right now? Mexico, Brazil, Argentina. Now we have uh, Asia Pacific as well. And then we're looking at some stuff in Canada and then eventually in Europe. And wow. based on what the fintech company wants, we can also kind of like, usually like we can support about 35 or so countries, but it's a function of kind of like where the demand is, who wants to launch a product like that and some more work on top of it from a compliance perspective to make sure we're ready to be able to do it. But um, I think uh, the most important areas at this point we have covered. So. Do you need licensing in each of those countries that you launch in? Or is that all just handled by the fintechs that you work with? Uh, so you don't, need, you don't need licensing in those countries that we've, uh, that we've evaluated because uh, the idea... <laughs> The idea we have is very new. Like uh, there, there have been tons of broker dealers that have opened up brokerage accounts, cash management accounts, foreign investment accounts uh, for people who don't live in the U.S. Um, we're just making it more accessible and scalable with an API. Uh, so there's a lot of precedent in a broker dealer opening up a cash management account for folks that don't live in the U.S. Um, now there, uh, there are countries that have like restrictions and how much money you can move from that country like india i believe has a hundred thousand dollar restriction every year which is you cannot uh, send more than a hundred thousand dollars uh, to the u.s from india every year so those those restrictions apply um but outside of that this is not like a new concept we're just we're we're, the, we're just scaling it right are you the broker dealer or is it are you working with a partner yeah. oh no, wow we uh, we are yeah oh, so we no did idea. two things yeah, we did two things during COVID. We got our own broker dealer license, and then we wow. also got our own lending licenses in 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 almost all states. Wow, wow, not easy compliance uh, overhead there, huh? Yeah, no. But you already have. If you do this business, you already have a compliance overhead, at least from from our standpoint, right? Because we're like a platform provider, um, so it just made sense. We already had that overhead. One formalize it. Um, hopefully, that also gives our bank partner some some somewhat of a comfort that we're a regulated yeah. partner versus not. And then, like you have to just staff and scale appropriately. Yeah, yeah, that that totally makes sense. That now your your banking partner will feel a lot more comfortable. You have your a broker dealer license, right? So that's yeah. awesome. Cool. Um, so I guess my next question is around competition. So it's you know rapidly growing industry new players coming up all the time. How do you think about differentiation? 
I don't care. Um, I, I kind of got that vibe because you seem so product focused. So, you yeah, know, it seems like we're just going to build what we what we should build. And that's, you know, it's going to lead us to um, green pastures. Or not. I don't know. Like, uh, we're, we're obsessed with the problem. The problem is, uh, initially, it used to be how can we give people in the US a bank account? It doesn't matter uh, if you're an immigrant or not. And now the problem set is, uh, how do we give folks access to a USD account? It doesn't matter where you live. We didn't get into this business because we read like a McKinsey report that banking as a service was going to be massive. And we were like, if we own a piece of it, we would be rich. Uh, and we didn't get into this business because we think, yeah, we didn't get into the bus- this business for any, like for that. So like, I don't really focus on the competitors as much. Like we really focused on delivering what what we want to deliver and our customers want to use, right? So in... Uh, we think that the the larger teams are making financial services e- easily accessible for folks that live in the U.S. and beyond. And uh, we just want to listen to our customers and build good features for them and build a good product and just execute on that. And I feel like by the time we're able to do that right, uh, all of the other things don't matter as much. It's awesome. I love that attitude. And I guess last question before we start our uh our lightning round. How has your perspective oh, on uh, embedded fintech changed? I guess since you were there at the very nexus of it to to now. Um, believe it or not, I we're in the early days. Um, when I started Synapse, uh, the only thing fintechs were able to do were like very low fidelity use cases, either payment processing or like a fiat wallet inside a crypto exchange or an automated savings app. Uh, and now we're at a place where people can do debit cards and uh, accounts, payable receivables, credit reporting, credit cards. Tons of cool stuff can be can be done around the financial infrastructure. But we're still not where I had expected and hoped we would go to, which is embedded finance. Just drag and drop something and it just works. Drag and drop and it works. So I still think there's there's... We're still... Ironically, we're still with the early adopters. Like everyone's still an early, early adopter in the market because they're like sophisticated fintech companies that want to be able to launch a fintech product and build a lot around it, own customer support, own fraud, do in some cases own credit underwriting, do a bunch of this stuff. We we soon need to graduate to a place where you don't have to do any of that. You can just you can just drag and drop something an existing product and it just works. Uh, we're still a few years away from that because you have to solve for uh, scaling identity verification at a global level. You have to do fraud management and indemnification. You have to do credit underwriting and indemnification, and you have to advance no code and data lakes. Uh, so there's tons of work that needs to be done before you get there. So thus, I still think it's in the early innings and we're literally just scratching the surface of the early adopter market. And uh, like the product will achieve maturity when like, TikTok and uh, Fortnite have a fiat wallet embedded with a card or something like that. And they didn't have to hire like 100 compliance people and like 50 engineers to be able to pull that off. We're not there yet. We're still pretty early. Dude, I love the vision. I love the vision. You, you put a fire in my belly. Someone's got to build it, right? And it sounds like you guys are also on your way to building it, but uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, cool. All right. Lightning round. So... 
the product that that you offer at Synapse or that you built uh, that you're most passionate about? Product that I'm most passionate about, Global Cash. Yeah. Why? Um, because I think it's just like, I think it it has a larger ambition and a, a, a much more kind of like, you know, uh, uh, I feel like I I have earned my salary if I can scale that product. Which podcasts do you listen to? Listen to Lex Friedman a lot. Um, I'd still listen to Joe Rogan uh, a decent bunch. <laughs> I know it's a controversial one. Uh, I listen to The Daily. Um, the Daily usually is like, I feel like, a really good source of moderate news. Um, uh, so that one is pretty good. Um, there's actually this one podcast by this guy called uh, Josh. I'm forgetting his last name. Uh, it's called I'm Not a Monster. And uh, uh, Josh has spent like about 12 years plus uh, just in the Middle East looking at ISIS and uh, people that from the Western countries went to ISIS and joined them. And he's done like he's on season two. It's phenomenal. Um, so I pretty much listen to that a whole lot. But those are like my usual go-tos. Any suggestions for content for someone who's looking to learn more about embedded fintech? I, honestly, I think it's like follow people who are actually building stuff and talk about it publicly. Like I, I admittedly don't talk about it publicly as much, but there are people who talk about it publicly a lot on LinkedIn and Twitter. And there's no comprehensive book or kind of like one hub that's doing a really good job at it. It's actually operators that like sometimes just share a lot and you should just like follow those people. And last one, top book recommendations. Top book recommendations. I could I could tell you the books that um, are my all-time favorite, and then I don't know if like people would like those books or not. Um, I love uh, the Foundation series from Asimov, um, and the whole reason why I love it is when I was a kid, I like read read the books, and then um, I was always amazed by um, the very long time horizon the books taught in right like and i got obsessed by could i think that far which is like usually humans think like uh weeks months years if you're if you really have conviction decades but like in the like in the foundation series things are playing out in like hundreds of years um so like i've always been obsessed by that which is like wow can you actually think like that far ahead so that's that that has like shaped my thinking a whole lot. So I really like that book, um, those books. So I think like those I would recommend. Um, outside of that, like um, it's gonna sound weird, but like I just love physics. Uh, physics makes me happy. So like um, uh, there's this like textbook that I still have from physics called Elade Resnick Walker. Uh, that book is really good. Uh, um, uh, if you if you really need to kind of like train your brain to think about problem statements and then solutioning. Uh, I think like I would highly recommend uh, physics and I think the Halliday Resnick Walker book uh, uh, really trains your brain to think that way. Um, so I believe like that book I would recommend. Um, I would also recommend The Power of Myth. It's like one of my favorite books um, that talks about um, more than anything else, like how to tell a good story uh, and what, what really like resonates with people around storytelling. Uh, so uh, that book has been, 
ironically, usually people have read that book to more so understand like what are myths and why are they so powerful. I read that book and my head went to, well, how do you tell a really good story? Um, so I like that book a whole lot. But those are like, I've, I periodically reread those books. So I think like those books I, I would really recommend to people. I love that. I love that. I'm going to read The Power of Myth, Myth now. That was a great pitch. Pretty good. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for the conversation. I mean, this has been super interesting. I hope I wasn't too harsh. And uh, and uh, I really appreciate the time. Really appreciate yeah, thanks the time. for having me, Josh. I really appreciate you uh, spending some time with me as well. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please like or comment on social media or even consider leaving us a review. It really helps us spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast or you can find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Medium at Warren Fintech. And there you can find interviews, articles, and so much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor, Rafael Saria. And until next time, I'm your host, Josh Benedivo.